This piece was brought to you by Roberta's, robertaspizza.com. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Happy Thursday. This is the HRN Happy Hour. We have a packed studio and a packed show today. Really excited to get rolling. I hope everybody's had a great week. We missed you. Uh, So we're back. I'm going to roll around and introduce everybody who's here today. My name's Katie Mosman-Wadler. I'm the Executive Director of Heritage Radio Network. Uh, My very generous sound guy, (laughs) engineer in the booth, is David Tadashore. Thank you. (laughs) I think he got more applause than I did. Uh, to my right, we have Emily Pontecorvo, who produced this week's episode. Hi, Emily. Hello. And beside Emily is Kat Johnson, our communications director. Hey, everybody. We are also honored to have in studio with us today Patrick Martins, founder of Heritage Radio Network. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly what he sounds like in real life. <laughs> And our very, very special guest today is Abe Shaw. He's the founder of Eating Tools, which sells unique and handmade eating and cooking tools from artists and designers worldwide. Based right here in Brooklyn and longtime supporter of Heritage Radio Network. Thank you, Abe, and hi. Happy, happy hour. Good to be here. (laughs) Happy, happy hour to you. (laughs) And what a happy, happy hour it is. Um, So what what did everybody do this week before we get into the highlights? Um, Kat, what, what was your week like? I had a really fun Sunday night. I went to KCBC in Bushwick, and uh, we were just walking by, did not have plans to go, and we see a sign that says, chamber music tonight. And I was like, what is going on? They had a chamber orchestra um, playing a set, and they ended with Rhapsody and Blue, and then the brewery also brewed a beer called Rhapsody and Brew. And it was like, I never thought that beer and orchestra music would go so well together. But it was just like a really like nice, chill way to spend a Sunday night. Nice. Yeah. Cool. Patrick, how about you? I got arrested in Missouri and cuffed. You topped mine. So um, if you get like, I guess my car got tickets, you know, from all those kind of videos that catch you. But then how do they know I was the one driving? Because many people drive a car. And then it made me wonder if I'm very high on points. How come our insurance is going up and is on the insurance? So how could one person with low points be on the insurance, even though their significant other, their husband or kid or whatever, has a lot of points? And isn't on the insurance, and so the insurance stays low, but it's driven by a high-risk driver. So everything is crazy. I shouldn't have gotten the point. It was a driver's assessment fee. That's what got me, which is an arbitrary fee they add on separate from tickets if you have X amount of points. Very frustrating, but I'm all right. I survived my hour in prison. Rebel, rebel. It was terrible. You're hardened. The men were very nice to me there, thank God. So nice, I bet. Yeah. The nicest. I'm standing, by the way, in studio. Uh Uh-huh. Um, thanks for that. Great. Uh, Abe, I hope your weekend was better. It was good. My week has been defined by uh, a wedding that I went to this weekend. Oh, nice. In North Carolina, where it was uh, about as cold as it is here. Um, but a, a very good friend's wedding. Good food, good drink. Um, 
gave me an opportunity to celebrate and say Patty's Day on Friday, which I don't usually <laughs> do, but uh, when you're out of town celebrating with friends, it worked out well. Nice. Aww. Wow, Dave. <laughs> I'll take that. Uh, Dave, how about you? You on the mic? Um, what did I do this weekend? I don't even know. You work. Next. Sound nice. effects. We'll talk about what wah, you did when wah, we get to the highlights wah, from the show. Wah. Emily? Uh, I didn't do much this weekend, but last week I was in Portland, Maine. I was doing a radio workshop up there um, at the Salt Institute, which is a documentary school. And I on Friday, I didn't get to eat anything in Maine all week, but on Friday I got to go to Eventide, which oh, was, yeah. they were just nominated for a James Beard Award. Well, you didn't eat all week? <laughs> <laughs> just nothing special nothing special nothing uh, everything Portland in Portland Maine. is special yeah. <laughs> but um, Eventide is specialer Eventide was special I had a very special lobster roll there and that was a highlight oh yeah can you tell us about that lobster roll I I, I want everyone to know about it uh, oh my god okay I think it's on a potato bun and it's like on some other kind of bun and it it's a brown butter lobster roll they do butter not mayonnaise yeah, I don't know what else to say. It was delicious. It's Keep really going. bomb. I'm it's like a steam eyes. steam bun. <laughs> do people on the Florida Keys propose that their lobsters are better than Maine lobsters? Because I mean, shouldn't there be a competition? Th- no, there is no competition. I've never heard that's Flo- absurd. Florida try to claim that. that I know, but they should. Florida lobster is, is inferior. It has no. It has no inferior. hands. You yeah. can't eat the hands. You just yeah. eat the tail on Which the Florida like one. Which is not the best part. It's the worst part. Is it? Is that true? Is the claw considered tastier than the tail? Well. Do you want to know my secret? Mm-hmm. I love the claw, but the best part is the arm that like leads up to the claw. So like on a main lobster, you have a lot of like elbow, mm-hmm. and that's the sweetest and tenderest. Interesting. Meat. Mm-hmm. And the little tail fins, but they're really tiny. You have to be really gentle. Yeah. Tiny hands. Tiny hands. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So um, that seems like a pretty exciting week all around. I didn't do a whole lot, but I did take my puppy to Brighton Beach this weekend, which was awesome. Uh, hung out with family, played cards with friends, pretty low-key. Um so we did have a lot going on on the radio last week. Um, on Magnifico Radio, we heard about fashion's effect on the ocean because it was, in fact, World Water Day. Um, yeah, can you tell us about that? Yeah, so I think a lot of us are familiar with um, the the ban to, I mean, the campaign to ban microbeads um, because of the terrible effect they have on our oceans. Um, so Kate Black had Steve Wilson on her show, and he was a big part of that. Steve. Um, it's Steve. It's Stiv. It is? It's Stiv. Okay. <laughs> Not a typo. Stiv? Okay. Yeah. Well, he so he was part of the campaign to ban the microbeads, and now he's his next um, campaign is around microfibers. Um, and, you know, these are the fibers that come off of your clothes and the wash, and they the same way that microbeads do, they end up in our oceans. So listen to the latest episode of Magnifico Radio about that. And then on the same trend of water, Katie Kiefer welcomed um, uh, Bill Stowe, the CEO of the Des Moines Waterworks, and she talks about the um, attempt for the Des Moines uh, waterworks to sue for the drainage areas upriver from them who were um, polluting their water and unfortunately the Supreme Court ruled against the the local utility in that case but it's just it, these were two really great shows to listen to on water world water day and really you know be aware that water is not just something we should take for granted 
It is like the build is the biggest issue of the future, right? Lack of water. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, and that's really intimately tied into our food and agriculture system as well. So big topic for HRN. I, we have so many of these things on our um, our calendar where we have like it, uh, we have you know World French Bread Day and uh, International Ham Sandwich Day and a lot of these like more celebratory days. But World Water Day, you know, while it is kind of a, a holiday, it's something that we can be taking really seriously and using to kind of guide our coverage around like pretty serious world issues too. So not all the world something days are for some are very total celebration, but yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But you can't really have any of them without water, but we can also take a day to celebrate water. Yeah. Um, we also, speaking of celebrating our, um, we sent out a big email today highlighting, uh, kind of the latest buzz around HRN. And so, um, in that, we got to shout out Snacky Tunes. They just got uh, honored with an Evangelist Award at the hmm. Taste Awards in L.A. That was really cool. And that goes out to people who are not only promoting themselves in their own podcasts and radio shows, but also uh, really being ambassadors and helping other shows get promoted uh, and just generating goodwill around uh, an entire community of content producers. So that was really great to see. Really excited for those guys. Those guys were one of the firsts. They're, wow, the, they're still the OG, yeah. the OG Bresnitz twins. Mm. Mm-hmm. They used to be bringing in like 20, 30 people into this little studio. I don't believe that. <laughs> every Sunday. Every Sunday. That sounds like fake news. Uh-huh. Um, also, uh, not fake news, Cooking Issues got shouted out for being the best podcast for food science nerds. That's not really news. We all knew that already. Uh, but that was in Bon Appetit, um, shouted out by Andrew Zimmern, which was really great. Can I say, isn't it incriminating to like all these awards groups not to have already awarded Dave's show? I mean, it's the top of its kind in the world. I mean, I just think he should get nominated every time they do a podcast show. He needs to be awarded. I think uh, it might be a little jealousy going on (laughs) because nobody beats Dave. It's all political, man. It's all political. It's all political, but quality is quality. We're not political. I mean, that's just a statement of fact. He is the top of the food nerdy science podcasts and. Everything answers in that space your questions. Is, is yeah. there and yeah, and that's like our most robust call-in show. So really, they cool. had a really crazy call-in show this week, right, Dave? Uh, yeah, actually, it was all call-ins this week, which is, I mean, they they always get a lot of call-ins, but usually he'll take time out to read emails. But it was just nonstop call-ins this week, so that was cool. Cool. And awesome. a shout out to Nastasia who is opening Pasta Flyer, the first fast food oh. pasta concept with Mark Ladner. I'm so excited for that. It's Will awesome. there be heritage Genius. foods? Yes, they buy from Heritage, but most importantly, it's a fast food concept where you can eat pasta in under three minutes, you get it, and it costs under $6. Wow, that's cheap. Yeah. That's amazing. Um, Well, we are super excited for their opening. Um, One other shout out from the email today was uh, the hosts of We Dig Plants, Carmen DeVito and Alice Marcus Creek were highlighted in Garden Collage, and they also did a nice segment about the HRN mission and like our history in general. So really cool to see. We're all we're up in the press. Um, So that was the buzz from the latest buzz email. And speaking of buzz, um, last episode that we're going to highlight from this week was episode 83 of Eating Matters, titled The Secret Life of Bees. Now you get my joke. Uh, it was it was a hilarious joke. Wait for it. Um, so on this episode, Jenna spoke with Dr. Reese Halter about the effects of our current agricultural system on bee health, including the recent declines in bee population and its devastating repercussions and what people can do to reverse the trend. 
there was also a pretty interesting piece of news last week um, where uh, Cheerios was trying to call attention to the plight of bees. So there's like a few did you knows here. Um, Honey nut Cheerios in particular? Well, yeah, we'll get there. But yes. Um, So one in three bites of food that we eat is made possible by bees and other pollinating insects. So if you um, don't save the bees, a third of your food is going to go away. Uh, Whole Foods has done really cool things where they, like, take out all the produce in the produce section that's pollinated by bees and and let you see, like, what the world would be like. Would be like. Well, I feel like this is hitting on so many levels. (laughs) Um, And then... Scary bees. The really really scary thing is um, in 2015 alone, 42% of bee colonies in the U.S. collapsed. So colony collapse disorder is happening around the world. Uh, A number of factors involved, including parasites and pesticides and habitat loss. So General Mills uh, temporarily removed Buzz the bee, the mascot of Honey Nut Cheerios, from the boxes. And uh, his his outline has been just replaced with like a white ghost figure. Um, They're doing a campaign called Hashtag Bring Back the Bees. And this is really awesome that they're generating awareness around the topic. Um, and, and you know, millions of people are going to see those boxes and, and hopefully contemplate for a minute that the bee is missing. That um, actually makes this Onion article, the uh, Onion headline, not that funny. Swarm called off after only 12 bees show up. Oh, that's, that's actually now super depressing now that you guys yeah. know I hear all this reality about bees. But the thing um, is, so this story takes a turn because yeah. whenever it still seems like when big companies want to like make a great statement, do something great, then like something falls short. Right. Um, so we um, we read shortly after this came out. General Mills' initiative was that on their website, they could um, people could claim a free package of wildflower seeds that were meant to create bee-friendly habitats. Um, and thus far, they've given away 100 million wildflower seeds. And uh, that was their goal. Sorry. Their goal was to give away 100 million, and they've so far sent out more than 1.5 billion seeds, which is cool. Um, but then all of a sudden, all these bee experts came out, and they started warning people not to plant those wildflower seeds because they contain non-native plants. So when you're going to send one packet of seeds around the entire country, that's going to be a problem because, uh, you know, depending on the region that you're planting in, those those plants might not be the correct species for that area. So um, to speak more with us on this topic, we have a special guest that we're going to call in. Um, Miriam, are you on the line? I am, I am. Thank you so much for joining us. This is Miriam Goldberger from Wildflower Farm in Coldwater, Ontario. Thank you for your time today. I'm happy to be with you. So we are just getting caught up on the General Mills um, Free Seeds Initiative, and I wanted to hear your perspective about um, what, what you've heard about the seed packets so far, why these are dangerous, and what we can do instead. Uh, well, let, let's back up a little bit. Uh, I'm a wildflower seed grower. I sell wildflower seeds all over North America. Uh, These are true North American wildflower seeds. But if if we look at this exercise uh, that Cheerios uh, has launched, uh, it is a a really classic example of greenwashing and unfortunate miseducation. Uh, What I mean by that is, 
specifically is the following. I have basically five points uh, that are super relevant to this discussion. One, most commercially grown wheat is actually filled with pesticides, and pesticide use is rampant uh, in commercially grown wheat. So, wow. And the pesticides actually uh, are a great deal of what kills both the native and non-native pollinators. Um, point two, <clears throat> native pollinators such as for example, uh, bumblebees, and there's lots of other kinds of native pollinators, as well as beneficial insects, uh, actually thrive on native plants. And in fact, when you grow wildflowers, you actually grow the native pollinator and beneficial insect community. Why is that so important? Because native pollinators are actually far more efficient and effective in pollinating than the European honeybees, which are the honeybees that most people, uh, the bees that most people are familiar with. But in fact, those are from Europe originally, and they uh, don't actually have the same nutritional needs as native pollinators. And the wow. wildflowers and the native pollinators have, have evolved for thousands of years together, and they work in a synchronistic fashion. Um, point three, uh, the non-natives that are included in the Cheerios quote-unquote wildflower seed mix uh, are basically nutritionally uh, ineffective and not as powerful in terms of their nutrient quality as the North American wildflowers are. Uh, it's sort of the equivalent of feeding human beings food that is not really high in nutrition or even going to the other end of the spectrum could be considered almost like junk food. Wow. Yeah. And then my fourth point is that as I was saying earlier, native plants grow pollinators and beneficial bugs. And there have been studies that have proven that farmers that plant wildflower swaths on their farms actually uh, reduce their need to use pesticides by mm. 60 to 80 percent. Wow. And my fifth and final point is that many commercially grown flowers, that is to say wildflowers and other flowers that are from, from somewhere else originally that we're familiar with, uh, are often commercially grown overseas with rampant pesticide use. Wow. Those are my so the, points. The wild, the quote unquote wildflowers are maybe not even being propagated in this country or in this continent. That is correct. Wow, that's amazing. Um, so, so I have a bunch of questions that have come from these facts that you've given us. This is so fascinating. Um, one is, so you said that the 
the honeybees that we're looking to save are not the most important pollinators. Um, and and I mean, I'm not against it, um, European honeybees. I mm-hmm. have over a hundred hives on mm-hmm. my own property myself, as well as lots of native pollinators. So I'm I'm not a honeybee hater. Mm-hmm. So, but we should be trying to not only save the honeybees, but also create habitat for the native pollinators. Yes, okay. it is the most efficient way for us to landscape and to pollinate the food that we eat. Wow. What are some examples of native pollinators? Bumblebees, moths, uh, many different kinds of flies and wasps. And every single North American wildflower has very specific relationships with different wildflowers that have evolved for thousands of years. The most famous one, the poster child of these relationships, is the monarch butterfly Mm -hmm. and milkweed. Mm -hmm. And they have very specific relationships. It's like, you scratch my back, I scratch yours. (laughs) In other words, listen, if you will come and... uh, pollinate me so that I can make babies, then I will, in turn, um, take care of your, your uh, baby monarch, i.e. caterpillar uh, babies, and feed them uh, my special leaves and protect them so that they can grow up big and strong. Well, very this interesting. Is an exclusive relationship. Let me ask a question: If someone was going to start a new population or a new hive, are there difference in qualities of the genetics of the native po- pollinators? Like, I mean, if you just get them, I know in the male you can get like a queen bee, but is it like with livestock where certain genetics are better than others, certain breeds or certain genetic lines are better or stronger, or more adapted to a place than others? Or are yes, a honeybee that is a honeybee. very true. And mm-hmm. part of the large range of uh, issues facing uh, European honeybees is that they are forced to be itinerant as well. So there are a lot of different factors. And I am not a European honeybee expert, except I can tell you that uh, the way that humans treat them is in in some ways at in certain circumstances kind of akin to slavery which doesn't tend to be very healthy how can you raise bees in a way that is less um or is that just a factor that of where we're using them for their their honey products i've seen different like hive designs where um there's like a, a drip design do you do you use any alternative hives for that purpose I am not a honeybee expert, but what I can tell you, which is really fairly mind-blowing, is that we are one of the very few places that I'm aware of in North America that has totally healthy hives. We have had no losses. Mm. This is probably several specific reasons. One, uh, the the bees here (coughs) receive nutrition of the highest quality. Remember I was saying much earlier in our conversation that wildflowers offer the highest nutritional content to pollinators and beneficial insects. Mm -hmm. Secondly, we happen to be lucky enough to live in Ontario, Canada, where uh, a lot of pesticides have now been outlawed. And Uh thirdly, our farm just doesn't happen to be near anybody any farm that uses pesticides. 
Um, and I have just one last question for you, sure. uh, Miriam. I really appreciate all of your thoughts here. Um, so if people in the United States do want to plant wildflower swaths, do want to um, create pollinator habitat and create um, honeybee habitat, I saw that you have a seed selector tool on your website to help identify the best flowers to grow in your region. Does that yes. uh, work for the and U.S. We as well? wildflowers all over North America. Great. On the seed selector tool, you can find the type of soil, the amount of moisture, the amount of sunlight, your state, your province, the bloom time you're interested in, all these factors. We sell individual kinds of wildflowers as well as meadow mixes. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Miriam. I would encourage everybody to go to wildflowerfarm.com and check out that seed selector tool. If you do want to help the native pollinators with native plants, um, that would be a great source to order your seeds. Thank you for being on the air with us today. My pleasure. Thanks a lot. Have a great evening. All right. Thank you so much. And we are going to take a quick break and we'll be back with a couple more headlines and some interesting stories from our in-studio guests. See you soon. sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. We're also super awesome. Thank you, Heritage. <laughs> no, Roberta's. Thank, Thank you. you. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> that's the first time I'm hearing that one. That's amazing. Um, so we are back. This is the HRN Happy Hour. I'm still smiling from that awesome Roberta's ad. We are here live from our studio inside Roberta's Pizza in Bushwick, Brooklyn. <laughs> And uh, we have some very special guests in the studio today, including Abe Shaw, who will be joining us soon for uh, some utensil trivia. Um, And before that, I would like to pass the mic over to Emily Pontecorvo. She's on our amazing intern team. She produced our episode today, and she's got a few more headlines and um, some exciting highlights from a field trip today. Okay, so the first thing that's going on is that we're going to talk about beef. Um, Americans are eating way less beef. In a study conducted by the Natural Resources Defense Council, they found that Americans cut beef consumption by 19% from 2005 to 2014. So this is nearly a one-fifth reduction, and 
Um, it's pretty shocking. The New York Times reported on Tuesday about this story, and they had some sources attributing this to a reduction, uh, attributing this reduction to high beef prices, and other sources saying that consumers were paying more paying more attention to health um, and how you know their food choices affect their well being. Um, Patrick, have you? seen this um well you know who predicted this first that old ladies on the wendy's commercial <laughs> where's the beef where's the beef <laughs> but uh no i mean um i i think uh, things go up and down and i think uh you know i don't know it'd be interesting to see if that's a cyclical thing that'll swing back in a different direction or if like you know or maybe you know even mcdonald's like uh i know their breakfast so beef consumption might be dipping, but their breakfast business is booming. So are people just eating other commodity meats and it's going to swing mm-hmm. back? Who knows? Mm-hmm. It'd be interesting to tell. We haven't noticed much, but, you know, we're not really in the beef business. We're in the pork and turkey business. So. Well, anyway, the NRDC is hailing this as a victory for the fight against climate change. They see cattle farming as a huge source of greenhouse gases. Um, and that's that story. But in other bovine news, cows are burning to death en masse in God. these horrible wildfire fires that are happening in the Southwest. Uh, I don't know if you guys have been following this story, but basically 2 million acres, of, or more than 2 million acres of rangeland across Oklahoma, Kansas, Texas, and Colorado have been burning out the past couple of weeks. Um, farmers, some farmers have lost more than 500 cows, and these are animals that sell for nearly $2,000 at auction, so this is a lot of money. They're also losing infrastructure like fences and their homes and other you know buildings on their farms. And this is happening in the heart of Trump country, and he has not even acknowledged it once. And, you know, he's tweeting about um, Snoop Dogg and the East Coast Blizzard and the press, but he hasn't uh, mentioned what's happening to his people out horrible out in the southwest so um and now today this is very very recent news but um earlier this morning i went down to la casita verde which is a community garden in williamsburg where the where catherine garcia who's the commissioner of the department of sanitation announced a new expansion of the organic collection service in new york city so um I don't know if you guys know this, but (laughs) New York City currently has the biggest organics collection program in the country, meaning we divert the most food waste from our landfills more than any place in the country. And um, as part of the Zero X 30 initiative from Mayor de Blasio, we're trying to send zero waste to landfills by 2030. So this program is growing. And um, Catherine Garcia announced this expansion today. So, David, you have the tape. We currently serve just shy of a million people at the curbside, and with our roll light starting in May of this year and through the fall, we will take that to over 3.3 million people served by organics collection. So we're coming to a neighborhood near you, uh, whether that's Williamsburg, Gravesend, Coney Island, Sheepshead Bay, Brownsville, Fort Greene, Brooklyn Heights, so really, it spreads the gamut of all of the different diverse neighborhoods of the city. And we know that your food waste can be either an energy source or can become compost, as we see here. So we are expanding our network. We will be coming once a week uh, to collect organics at the curb. We will be delivering brown bins to every building in the communities that we will be serving that are under nine units. Um, 
We will be doing a lot of community outreach, and I want to encourage everyone who's involved in their communities to be on the lookout for our tabling events, to be on the lookout for uh, when we are doing civic meetings, when we are at religious institutions, because we want to engage with everyone on how important this is. So that was Catherine Garcia, the commissioner of the Department of Sanitation in New York City. And um, as far as getting engaged, if you do live in a building with 10 or more units, you can still be served by the Organist Collection Program. Um, you just need to reach out to DSNY. You can go to their website and um, submit an application and just click on Zero Waste on the Department of Sanitation website. Can I just say, I uh, lived in a Brooklyn neighborhood that was part of the pilot program for that. It's, it's mind-boggling how many pounds of, of material you know, can be collected in a week. And you can drop off at a lot of the green markets, a lot of the, the green market, farmer's markets. It's having grown up outside of the city and, and in a non-urban area, it's so neat to see so much collection happening where nobody would expect it. That's awesome. Do you guys have recycling, I mean, sorry, composting in the buildings where you live? Well, they don't allow it. My my building just got it. I live in Stytown, and we just got organic collection uh, like maybe two months ago. We used to keep it. I would collect it and keep it in a bag in the freezer, which like my freezer is so small. It was horrible. But I would take it to the green market like whenever I could or was around on the weekend and drop it off. Um, But now that we have it in the building, it's awesome. And I find like that really... Most of the garbage that we generate in my house is, is like, in the kitchen. Mostly I don't consume a lot other than food, and I do consume a lot of food. And (laughs) I would say it's, like, 50-50, like, what can be garbage or recycling um, versus what can be composted. And so we're thrilled because it's just been, like, so cool to see, like, everybody in the building's doing it. I just got a little matching trash can. They both go, like, inside my kitchen cupboard door so I have like trash on the left and compost on the right and it's 50-50 and it's so cool and everyone's happy about it I didn't know because I grew up in a hippie family where I'm like always like really excited about compost I didn't know how like the general population of my building would take it but people seem really thrilled so I'm so happy to see that it's expanding and becoming more of like a municipal operation than kind of like a special niche thing that some buildings are doing I didn't know you were a hippie yeah wow. they make some very stylish indoor compost bins True. Mm-hmm. Some pretty ones. It's if gold. you build it, they will compost. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, David. Oh, hey-o. David, do you have compost? Um, yeah, we will like stick it in. We, we just like make up a little bag of our own, stick it in the freezer, and then take it down to the farmer's market on Cortell U yeah. on the weekend. So responsible. Thank you. you. Guys. Thank you. you know? I do what I can. <laughs> Yeah, it's one of those things, like, you can't get too complacent and think, like, oh, I'm doing this great job because I'm composting. Like, I still use a lot of grocery and meal delivery services that generate a ton of plastic and paper and, like, other just, like, non-recyclable garbage. And so I do have a lot of guilt around that. Um, But the composting is just one small way that we're going to be able to reduce waste. And I'm really optimistic for when companies like Fresh Direct or like Blue Apron are going to be able to start using maybe reusable containers. I think this is my my vision for the future, and then we'll move on. Uh, I think that uh, once everything is delivered by a drone, it'll be a lot easier to have like a reusable plastic crate that could be dropped off and then Mm. just like sanitized in a giant dishwasher kind of machine um, to deliver groceries and meal kits so that it's not like so many cardboard boxes and coolers and everything. Mm. Very Um, Jetsons. Also not reproducing so. is a big thing we can do. Okay, Davy <laughs> Davy Downer in the and booth. I'm sure all, it's true, though. Do all the drones become 
compost after it after they reach a certain age. Uh, I thought you were going to say, do they become self-aware and and to take over? Yeah, they end end up in the the drone zone. They could just refuse to bring us our food and then take over the world. Yeah, right. (laughs) A slow death. Oh, no. Uh, So, Abe. (laughs) What's up, Abe? Past, present, and future. Um, Can you tell everybody a little bit about eatingtools.com? What is Eating Tools? You've been doing this for a long time. Yeah, yeah, but it's, uh, I can say it's a a lifelong endeavor. Eating Tools has been around for about three years, though. Um, I I mean, I've worked in in restaurants, front of the house, back of the house. You know, I obviously have a a love for good food and good drink. Uh, And I worked in and around knives, custom knives, handmade, like beautiful, collectible, oftentimes over-the-top knives. Uh, And doing that, I met these craftsmen. I met these makers, these just incredible people with passion for like you know not just the processes and and you know their creative vision but for the you know the materials and the metallurgy and the science behind what they were doing um and i realized there's this little niche knife world that i was seeing all these things in uh these tools had never seen the light of day outside of that world um chopsticks. You see, I have a thing for chopsticks. I grew up eating with chopsticks. My mom, I mean, from when I was, you know, a tiny kid, ate everything under the sun with chopsticks. You know, one kernel of popcorn at a time, salad, <laughs> um, whatever it might have been, you know, it was chopsticks. I buy her chopsticks as gifts now. Um, chopsticks was one of the early ones. These titanium chopsticks that Buddy was making these. They're beautiful, and they would sell out at knife shows. Um, and, and nobody, like, in the, in the culinary world, the people that I felt would really appreciate them, you know, knew that they existed. And so long story short, I launched Eating Tools. So on Eating Tools, the speaking of the titanium chopsticks, you have some really cool, I, would you call that anodized? Or how do you get the, the rainbow of colors on those chopsticks? Yeah, no, that's exactly right. Those are anodized. They are um, electrochemically anodized in a, in a so liquid cool. solution. And part of what's neat, I mean, I titanium is like an ultimate culinary material it doesn't rust or corrode it's really lightweight but it's incredibly strong um it's non-magnetic it doesn't conduct heat well and one of the things you can do to titanium like um aluminum but but only more vibrantly is anodize it and and you're actually changing the molecular um sort of makeup of the top layer of atoms um to reflect different shades of light. And so depending on the voltage that you submerge these in, in the liquid, um, you get different colors. And so it's not a mm. coating, you know, there's nothing, um, you know, unsafe about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it actually makes it stronger. So cool. it's one of those kind of cool, you know, stylistic, um, you know, form and function kind of a thing you can do to an eating tool like that. And, and are they, they're dishwasher cases. safe and everything? They're dishwasher safe, yeah. So yeah, cool. I, I would, uh, as a disclaimer, you know, I, I'd hate to think that most of the things I sell ever see the inside of a dishwasher. <laughs> um, but but you have my blessing to, to dishwash uh, titanium chopsticks. <laughs> that does tend to be one of my criteria for kitchen tools. Um, but you also have a lot of really beautiful handmade and one-of-a-kind items. What are some of the things that you're selling on the site that you feel really uh, are unique and beautiful that people should know about? Um, I mean, I'd have to say chef knives. Um, Chef knives have this allure in kitchens and with chefs. Um, That means that the people that buy them tend to be looking for, you know, specific things, tend to kind of know what they want. Um, You know, chefs describe their knife as an extension of of their hand. Um, 
chefs have these intimate relationships with their knives. You know, they keep them in these fancy leather bags and they make sure that nobody else in the kitchen can touch them. Um, and that also means that the people that are making them oftentimes come from a, you know, a place of, of almost extreme passion and, and enthusiasm for whatever it is that, that, you know, they're doing, whatever makes their work unique. Mm-hmm. Um, so to, to work with the guys uh, and gals that I work with that make knives, some of them are right here in Brooklyn. I mean, it's always a blast to, to work with local artists. Um, some of them are off. I, I was in France last summer um, with an artist who, you know, has his focus, and it's all about water-quenching carbon steel, something that almost nobody will touch, um, and, and it lends itself to this edge performance and, and knife geometry that... Um, all of a sudden I've gotten into, you know, I'm not a formally trained chef and I'm not a knife maker, um, but I, I just get kicks out of being around people that take what they do that seriously and, and in that kind of way. Has there ever been anything you've seen, a tool that didn't exist and you're like, I got to I got to invent something that serves this purpose, like tongs with the beer holder or that's something because I'm not creative but uh, you know or chopsticks that have this or you know I don't know it's a good question well speaking of uh, not being creative you know one thing I always tell my artists when uh, when we're talking about a new project is listen you're the creative you know mind behind this you, you do what you think is best so you know I haven't really conceptualized a new tool um, but working with the artist to you know to, to tweak and to refine and to play with with mixes of materials um to be honest i'm more into the that that mix of of design style and and function rather than uh groundbreaking new developments Mm -hmm. so i have i have a question from the audience my boyfriend's texting me. He's maybe the only person listening to us right now, but he wants to sure ask. He's one you. of thousands. Way yes. to promote the network. Hey, Will. <laughs> you sound like me. Hey, Will. Hi, hi, hi boyfriend. Will. Hey, Will. Hey, Will. Hey. So he wants to know because he, as soon as he started talking about knives, he was just like knives. Yes. He wants to know <laughs> when you're looking for a knife to use, what do you look for? Oh man, it, it, it's such a personal thing. You know, I, I tell people, you know, I sell these like expensive handmade knives, and listen, at the end of the day. They're all going to cut. They're all going to slice. They're all going to mm-hmm. chop. They're all going to julienne and dice and, and everything else. Um, you know, I look for a knife that feels right in my hand. I mean, uh, you know, uh, just like they're all going to cut, you know, uh, knives of this caliber, they should all be balanced. They should all be fairly comfortable. You know, I'm looking for the knife that speaks to me. I mean, this is a, this is a tool that's going to prepare like my my family and my sustenance. You know, I'm going <laughs> to use it with my family. I'm going to... It, it really is. It's this personal thing that eventually I'm probably going to pass down to my son. Um, you know, there's no reason that these knives shouldn't last like generations. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. that's what I'm thinking of mm-hmm. when I go to pick up a knife. Would you wow. say the knife finds you? That's a good question. <laughs> I, I have heard knives speak. I have heard knives speak. I won't talk about when that was. Abe <laughs> Shaw, the Ollivander of knives. <laughs> <laughs> um, this kind of leads into my question, Abe. I'm just curious, like, how are your knife skills? Personally, you're not a, a trained chef per se, or, or like, are you a super, are you fruit ninja? Are you, like, the julienne master? So- uh, I, can, I can move pretty quickly. I consider my skills, 
you know, pretty solid until I set up that camera and I try to shoot that quick video for like mm-hmm. an Instagram. And uh, you may have noticed I've never posted an Instagram of myself chopping. So uh, <laughs> maybe that answers that question. <laughs> uh, so like, but I think almost Instagram level is probably pretty exquisite knife skills that I'm yeah. guessing you're pretty good. Uh. Yeah, couple tricks up my sleeve. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, we would like to couple do, knives uh, up there too. Yeah. <laughs> Let's see. Nice. Are you packing? No, I'm not. I have chopsticks in my coat out there. I think that counts. So, um, what, how are people going to buy his stuff? I mean, where do they go? How do they do it? How does it work? Eatingtools.com. What's That's your right. Instagram? Eatingtools.com. Eating tools on Instagram. Um, eating tools on Facebook uh, on the Heritage Radio Network partners page. Mm-hmm. That's right, mm, of course. That's right. Proud to be here. That's how most people here. will access you. Yes. Um, so, a Jordan and Claire from the office came up with a game yesterday for you, just for you. Outstanding. It's gonna be um, <laughs> so we thought, okay, we have a utensil expert coming into the studio. How often does that happen? I mean. You know, I'm sure there are legions of utensil experts, but I think that you are among the first and foremost, and we wanted to test your knowledge. It's an honor. Uh, Kat, do you want to start us off with the first question? Okay, so question one. This is, um, okay. How many combinations of spoon, fork, and knife can you name? So spork, I'll give you spork. That's the, the one that exists, but can you name any other... Hybrids, or invent them on the spot, or just like invent. You know, so many include. uh, So there's the chong chopsticks and and tongs. (laughs) There's uh, the chork chopsticks and fork. Yeah. Uh, There's. Let's see. We've covered the spork. I'm gonna have to do the the nork, uh, which is the the name actually of a flatware company. But really, yeah, yeah. (laughs) And they do some neat stuff. Wow. (laughs) The plume. The the, and the, the ladle, spoon <laughs> and the ladle, spoon and the ladle. Um, you got any more? We have three more on our list. Spoon, oh really? Fork and uh-huh. knife. Spoon, uh, fork, and knife. Uh, spife, obviously the spife. Uh, you got to have a spork with a little or a Nailed spoon it. with a, a you know, serrated edge. Uh, and then there's going to be the um, the nork. We got the nork already. We got the nork. <laughs> yeah. Got that. Uh, Two more. I guess the Nork and the Fife are the same thing. Uh, Fife? We don't have Fife on the list. Uh, <laughs> fife. What kind of, what kind of <laughs> operation is it's this? It's a musical utensil. <laughs> well, yeah, we're here to learn, instrument? and we are learning. Okay. Wait, now you've got to give me the last one. Yeah, well, I don't know. One? Are you sure you can't name any more? Uh, Hasn't this man done enough? Well, here. Listen, what I'm going to give you. Is it by eating tools? You said Spife already. Okay, hold on. But but this is remarkable, because we had five on our list you have given us an additional five, you and Patrick together, that we didn't even oh, have. Oh. Yeah. So we do have two more, but you have put us to shame in our yeah, question development. Yeah, your research team, I don't know. <laughs> well, it, technically, some of them are kind of... Well, we'll get to this. Can we trade? Two more, you two can more. have two of my five, and you give Knife, me Knife, fork, uh, and spoon. Any, are, are you tapped out? All right, give it to us. Yeah, you, you better right. lay it on me. We have the sporf, which is a knife, fork, and spoon. I like Sporf. it. Sporf. Also, like it. the Sporf. Splade. Same combo. Splade. Oh, Splade. That one I... 
All right, I have to and find this blade artist. Um, but uh, I don't so understand blade. We, you you brought to our attention the, the fife, ah. the chong, the chork, <laughs> the plume, and the platele. But technically, the question was combinations of spoon, fork, and knife. Yeah, I like Abe's I was better. Pushing it. Yeah, but I I really like the chong and the chork. Chong, chong. The splorify, the splorify thing exists. Good one. Uh, you were saying about the splorf? The, the splorf, there's a, a, the light my fire titanium spork is really a splorf. It's a oh. fork with a little serrated edge on one of the tines and then a spoon on the other end. So it's did you know that you can be the proud owner of a splorf if you go to UniTools.com? <laughs> That's right. Anodized and all. Splorf. Trife? Trident and the knife? <laughs> or when you're eating Spoon, fork, and knife. Spoon, fork, and oh, knife. sorry. Okay, ready for the next question? Go. Okay, so I'm going to name... I'm going to name something and give you a description, and you tell me if it's a real utensil or not. All right. Okay. First one, trongs, plastic finger protectors designed to keep your fingers clean while eating chicken wings and ribs. Real. Absolutely real. Nailed it. That's correct. Wow, good. That was confident. <laughs> All right. Watchula. Have you used those before? I've seen them. Yeah. I've seen them. In use? In advertisements, anyways. Uh, uh. <laughs> okay. The Watchula. A spatula with a built-in timer set to tell you when to flip pancakes. I can't endorse that. No, it's too short-term. You have to be able to do that on your own. False. I agree with him. All right. Patrick, you're cheating. Correct. <laughs> I'm not cheating. I'm oh, not reading you that. Don't look at your answers. script. Okay, don't look. Don't look. I haven't looked at an outline since I started radio. Why Nobody did my show with so much? <laughs> okay. This one is called The Fred. It's a combination can opener, bottle opener, tiny spoon, it was issued to the Australian Defense Force soldiers, and it stands for the Field Ration Eating Device, but they jokingly called it the Fucking Ridiculous Eating Device. Uh, it's amazing, and I fucking need one. <laughs> fake or real? Real. It yes. is real. That was <laughs> just a, too detailed to be fake. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, last one is... Issued between 1923 and 1924 only. <laughs> yeah, probably. Okay, the Frisk. A small whisk that you put on your finger like a finger puppet. It should be real, but it's not. <laughs> it's not real. Oh, you're right. you're good. He wow. knows his utensils. He does. He knows what's he up. Knows. Okay, and okay, next you're question. You're four for four on that one. Yeah. Killing it. Okay, question number three. Who is credited for bringing the fork to France and making it a common utensil in Europe? I know this answer, but I won't say it. Because you had the script. I wrote, no, I never read the script. Why do you think I'm so bad? I knew bad? the answer to this once upon a time. It's not going to come to me. She uh, was a queen, and she moved north because of a marriage. And she brought all Italian culture with her. Wow. Italian, that's a big Catherine. clue. Oh, wow. Catherine de' Medici. That's she right. Also, uh, she also used nice. big parties as a political tool to entice and seduce her allies mm-hmm. not to conquer her. And, not to attack. She and very she powerful. may have also poisoned her husband. Yeah. You know how I know a lot about Catherine de Medici? This is going to be an embarrassing fact Medici. about myself. Medi- Medici. Mm-hmm. This is going to be embarrassing. You wanted me to reveal more about my personality, Patrick. Yes. I'm going to reveal. I watched that garbage show on the CW <laughs> called Rain. It's like Vampire Diaries, but about like... What? Yeah. Oh, I've yeah. Never heard is it current? I've never. It's heard pretty it. current, and it's like vamp. It's like the, it's along the lines of like Vampire Diaries. Wait, it rained like R E I G N. Yeah, exactly. And it's uh. like it's like a teen dramedy about like <laughs> Catherine de Medici and Mary Queen of Scots, and like 
but you actually learn some history. They were it's great pretty patrons, bad, though. Great patrons of the arts. Like if yes. someone's very good to heritage or the radio, I always say they're a Medici because you know oh. they help these families. <laughs> You're so Italian. And now I won't forget this. She didn't stab her husband with a. I was going to say yeah, that sounds <laughs> like him. A, yeah. It all comes back to food somehow. But anyway, it's a brilliant hey, uh, political. Her bar, her bar, her uh, monarchy was bankrupt, so she would throw huge three week long parties, and all the other people, heads of states, would be like, "Nah, we're not gonna conquer her." It Queen was very mother. smart. Can yeah. we read the the list of other things she was credited for bringing to France? Oh yeah, you want amazing? You want me to do it? Yeah. Okay. She was also um, credited for bringing olive oil, Chianti, white beans, artichokes. Aspics, baby peas, broccoli, cakes, candied vegetables, cream puffs, custard, ices, lettuce, milk-fed veal, melon seeds, parsley, pasta, puff pastry, quenelle, quenelles, quenelles, those cinnamon uh, pastries, scallopini, sherbet, spinach, sweetbreads, truffles, and how do you say that one, Patrick? Zabaglione. Zabaglione. But uh, you know. But what else is there? That's a lot. What did they have before? The well, they ate well, well, actually, all of this is widely disputed, except for the fork. Oh, oh, it is disputed. Yeah. Well, you know, Italy uh, was be- being where it was in the middle of the Mediterranean. Every culture came through there and conquered it and all that. Meanwhile, France, you know, through the way geography is, was kind of removed in England through the mountain range was either further removed. So that was the last of the European countries to benefit from all the mm-hmm. the Renaissance that Italy went through maybe three centuries before. And when Mary, Queen of Scots, went back to Scotland, she really, I don't think she took much with her. Not like Catherine brought from Italy. Right, right, right. She was kind of exiled. She was exiled and yeah. killed. I know so much from watching the CW. <laughs> Guys, it's, it's, a, it's basically the new History Channel. That's really? Good. Yeah. <laughs> this is a spinoff show. I sense it. History from okay. CW. We have another cat. history question. It goes way, way back into the Wayback Machine. Oh, okay. What is older, the spoon or chopsticks? Spoon. Yeah. yeah. You just knew that, wow. just like that. Yeah. Humans have that used humans have used the spoon since Paleolithic times. Hmm. They yeah. use like shells and chips of wood as spoons. Yeah, seashells. There's so many yeah. natural scooping scoops. Yeah. Nope. Couldn't cool. you argue there are many natural chopsticks as well? Sticks. You could. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> huh. But I guess a, it takes on, more a skills. New kind of dexterity. Yeah. It takes using yeah, different skills. Yeah. Well, and like I think someone told me that oysters may have been like one of the first animals humans ate, and so that's kind of like a natural spoon. Mm. And one of the only animals that is also its own spoon upon which you eat. Exactly. There you go. Oh, interesting. That may be how they got the idea. Some wow. of the best foods they come with their own built-in utensils. Like what else? I mean, uh, you know, you can eat the olive meat off of the pit. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, a, it's a little tougher. Um, I mean, any <laughs> seafood, though, mm-hmm. you were talking lobsters. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, heck, my, you know, my little boy he sits there with a banana. I mean, you've got, you know, you, you teach him. You peel Watermelon. it off, and it's got the handle on the bottom oh, and yeah. the meat coming out of the top. Mm-hmm. It's, yeah. So I learned that a trick. Oil, yeah. Uh, um, yeah. I actually didn't know this really until maybe last year or two years ago. Uh, a way of eating mussels. You can usually get the tiny little fork and you like get your moules marnier sauce all over yourself with the tiny fork. But the French way to eat it is you maybe use the tiny fork for the first mussel, but then you use the spent mussel shell as a mm. little tongs and you pluck the mussel out of the next one and 
eat it to yourself that Mongs? way. That Mongs? Didn't sound- <laughs> Mongs? That didn't sound very hippie, though, getting the Moule Marnier all over yourself. But it is. Uh, it I is know, what cool. a first world problem. Fancy hippie. But I do want to know <laughs> doesn't that imply if oysters were the first food that mankind ate, that mankind was developed on the sea? Yes. I always thought it came out of the forest or the central of Africa, but maybe mankind was, developed so on the coast. The guy who told me that worked at an oyster farm. So they may have been a little bit biased. Because, you know, pork and turkey were really the first food. <laughs> you guys should have a ate. debate. Bacon was the yeah. first food. But that was like that. Someone's like first question was like, but didn't we like didn't humans originate like yeah. not From on the coast? Well, I was yeah. just seeing something about this as as the deserts were drying and they were getting driven towards the coasts. All of a sudden, they ended up where there was this entirely new, um, you know, s- buffet of, yeah. of foods they never seen, and, yeah. and oysters were right on the top. I mean, they've always been incredibly. Wow. Abundant. And that must yeah. have been quite a find. Um, yeah, and, and like, who's the first guy who's like, let me bang this on a rock? It and might see have what been a find. woman. Could have been a woman. You're right, because maybe they were gathering. Okay, guys, we have just or maybe time they were for one last question. We're almost out of time. Kat, what's the final final question? question? Who invented the spork? Who's the stuffer? Pass. James Beard. <laughs> <laughs> His name was Samuel W. Francis, and he issued that patent in February of 1874. That's like a trivial pursuit question. No one could possibly know the answer. That was overly hard. Well, we knew that we would have a tough customer here. I'm doing more homework before I come in. (laughs) Uh, Abe, thanks so much for letting us grill you today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. You're listening to the HRN Happy Hour. We're on every Thursday at 5 o'clock. Thank you so much to our in-studio guest, Abe Shaw, from Eating Tools, eatingtools.com. Thanks for coming out today. You guys are awesome. Support HRN, people. Yay! Our founder, Patrick Martins. Thanks for having me again. Thanks for being here. Our producer, Emily Pontecorvo. Yay! Kat Johnson, Communications Director. Bye. Yeah. And our fabulous studio engineer, David Tadashore. Thank you. Yeah, air horn for you. Once again, we'll be back next Thursday, no, 5 o'clock. we won't be back next Thursday. We're taking a break. We're taking a break next Thursday. We'll see you in two Thursdays, everybody. Bye. Thanks a lot for being with us. for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.